Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of This Show Is All About You. It's a show about all the ways in which you and me connect as we and what that means for all of us. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin, and you can find out more about me at my website, which is wordsbyjdk.com, and on my social media feeds at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look up my name, W-Y-N-E-K-E-N, and you should find me rather easily. Would love to uh, connect and interact with you there as well. Welcome to episode 31 of this show for August 9th, 2021. And uh, today's show uh, I've titled A Blow Up in Montana. Blow Up in Montana. And uh, longtime listeners know that I always start the show out with a haiku. And this haiku, along with the title, will give you an idea of where we're going today. And the haiku for today's episode goes like this. One mountain failure led to many safer climbs for all who followed. One mountain failure led to many safer climbs for all who followed. And um, if you're wondering if this is going to be a little bit of a sadder story today, uh, yeah, yes and no. Uh, And there's a reason for that because it's a good story and it's a a story worth telling. But it also fits in with uh, the mission of the organization that is the new sponsor of this show that I announced last week. Airway Science for Kids. Uh, Airway Science for Kids is a Portland-based nonprofit that uh, helps underserved youth uh, facilitate life and career pathways for themselves through aviation and aerospace. It provides in-house education programs as well as uh, connecting youth to mentoring, uh, internships, uh, working with partner organizations in business, education, government, nonprofit, you name it, all in the name of helping uh, youth get really excited about not only aviation and aerospace, which is inspiring by itself, uh, but also to learn how to harness their own abilities, recognize them, and build better lives for themselves. And one of the things that Airway Science for Kids uh, teaches its students right from the very beginning is that in aviation and aerospace, failure happens. Failure happens. And in some ways, it's absolutely required in order for innovation to succeed. And uh, they do that in a number of different ways. And uh, really, it is true. In aviation and aerospace, many of the greatest leaps in both have come on the heels of failures, not just the ones that we see in the news, the tragedies where there's losses of life, but just in design, right? Designing aircraft, you have to design and figure out what works. Spacecraft, too. And you have to have failure in order to figure out what works so that you can trust what works when you're going to put people into the air at 30,000 feet or even higher, right? 30 miles above the earth, whatever it might be. And so uh, what I wanted to talk about today in that spirit is a story, uh, a historical story, a true one that talks about that, that illustrates exactly what I'm talking about. And I think it certainly applies to, can certainly apply to our own lives as well. If we take a look at our own personal lives, how many times are the most important lessons that we learn, how many of them come from failure, mistakes, or tragedy, things uh, that we wish had not happened or could go back and do over again And yet the most important things uh, tend to come out of them and, in fact, can make our lives better. And so I'd like to tell a story today uh, that talks a little bit about that. It's a really interesting week or so, the last week, in terms of big anniversaries. Uh, Today, for example, August 9th, is the 71st anniversary, 71st, 76th, I think. Yeah, 76th anniversary of the atomic bombing of Nagasaki. Of course, the second one, the anniversary of the Hiroshima bombing, was on Friday. And, of course, two monumental events in human history. 
in both cases, hundreds of thousands were killed uh, when we combined the people killed in the initial blast with those who died of radiation poisoning immediately after and in the years after that. Uh, certainly uh, terrible events uh, and a huge source of debate ever since. Um, and there's, off, you know, there's been a lot of debate and lessons uh, drawn from that event over time. Uh, in particular, was it worth it, <laughs> dropping that bomb? It's, it's a weird question to ask about anything like this. Was it worth it? Because it's assigning arbitrary value to human life in the past based on our own criteria today. And it's easier for me to say it was worth it from 75 years later on the other side of the Pacific Ocean than it would be for a family member who went through it. Right? That's all pretty subjective. But still, it is something that, you know, when we look at the lessons, um, if there is a positive, quote-unquote, lesson that's come out of that, is that the horror of what happened there has had a role in preventing it from happening again. There has been, there's no way to really quantify that, to what degree that's responsible. But nevertheless, it is something that we can draw from that. It's incomplete. It's kind of icky to talk about. And certainly it's an example in that case of why it's good not to get into total wars if you can avoid them, because it creates choices that are between horrendous choices and even more horrendous choices. It, it doesn't allow for the nice, clear lines between what's the right thing and the wrong thing that we like to think um, can happen in any situation. It just doesn't allow for it. And that's one of the saddest things about it. So anyway, that's not the story I want to tell. <laughs> okay? And if you all thought I was going to go down that road, it was going to be a depressing afternoon in, indeed. But I'm not going to go with that. Instead, I want to tell you a story that maybe some of you might know, but some of you might not. It's from another anniversary from the last week. August 5th, last Thursday, was the anniversary of the Man Gulch Fire of, of 1949. Man Gulch... Uh, is in Montana. It's uh, along the Missouri River in uh, the Helena National Forest, uh, somewhat close to the state capital there, but in a pretty rural area of, of Montana. And it is one of the most famous fires uh, in American history. Not because it was the largest, because it wasn't. It burned for five days. The longest ones have burned for five weeks or longer. Uh, but it's because of an incident that happened there that did cost a lot of lives, but has had immense port importance since then in how we understand wildfires and fight them. And in particular right now, for me, this is very poignant. A friend of mine from college last week lost his home and his hometown. Uh, Greenville, California, of course, burned entirely by the so-called Dixie Fire out there that is doing things that firefighters have not seen fires do before. Uh, this is becoming, unfortunately a very sad regular occurrence uh, in Western states the last few years. And so it, this story is even more poignant, I think, because of that. So August 5th of 1949, uh, we're going to sort of take ourselves back uh, to Montana. I want to tell you this story uh, from the perspective as much, of we, as much as we can from one person. And it was a 20-year-old uh, ranger named Jim Harrison, James O. Harrison, who, 20 years old that summer, was working as a recreation and park ranger at a nearby campground in Man Gulch, M-A-N-N, -N, by the way, is how that's spelled, Man Gulch. And he noticed at about noon on that day that on the south slope of the gulch, which went, the Missouri River ran right through the middle of it, on the south slope, there was a wildfire going. Now, just to give you a sense of what this looks like, this wasn't a big, tall timber fire with uh, a bunch of trees, high trees uh, on fire. 
the slopes in Man Gulch are mainly covered in cheatgrass. And cheatgrass is about knee-high, thick grass that when it dries out becomes incredibly powerful as an accelerant if it catches fire. But So these faces of these slopes of this gulch are pretty wide open. There's some sparse bushes and some trees here and there. But for the most part, it's these grassy plains. And he noticed at noon this fire had started. Now, the year before, uh, he had served, he had taken his summer vacation from Montana State University to be a smoke jumper the year before. But he had decided not to do that after one summer because it was too dangerous. Now, begs the question, what is a smoke jumper? This is where we need to pause and leave uh, Jim standing there looking at this fire on the south slope of Man Gulch to kind of give you a little bit of the history of the smoke jumpers. Smoke jumper sounds exactly like what it is. These are firefighters who parachute out of airplanes to fight wildfires. Usually they are sent in right when a wildfire is detected out in the middle of nowhere that is difficult to access. They parachute in and try and knock down these fires by digging uh, digging trench lines and sort of put, using those to push the fire into places where there's less fuel. They try and do that before the fire gets out of control. If you haven't heard of them before or don't often um, in this annual wildfire season, that's for a reason. Because smoke jumpers like to do their jobs quietly and efficiently. <laughs> and this is what they do. They jump into fires from about 1,500 feet from airplanes. Their equipment, which is things like pickaxes, chainsaws, food, uh, radios, everything also is airdropped in with them. Okay? It's about 110 pounds of gear for each person to carry. Okay? They parachute in with those things. Uh, they wear suits that can withstand uh, a great deal of heat. In fact, uh, they can withstand 2,000 degrees of heat for about four seconds, right? Enough time for them hopefully to get away from that. But they have to dive in with that or jump in with that. And usually when they parachute into a fire, they work on it for about 48 hours or so to wipe it out or to buy time for ground crews to get in. Hot shots, for example, is another, another group of firefighters who kind of work their way into rural areas on the ground and they're the ones usually that take command of, of fighting the larger fires. So the smoke jumpers are like the emergency services. The hot shots come in behind them, and then other firefighters come in to help corral the fire. So these guys are the first line of defense. Okay, so now when their job is done, after 48 hours, there's no way to get back on a plane from where they are. So they hike out, and they literally walk back to their base, wherever that may be. Uh, and some of them do what so-called di- is called dirty jumping where they get back to base, find out that there's another fire that has just started where they need to jump, uh, need to jump. And so in, instead of showering, taking a few days off, they just drop their gear, get new gear, get in another plane and go and do it again. Right? And they don't like a lot of notoriety, so you don't hear about them very often. In fact, when you do, it's usually because there's a problem. Now, this started, this whole thing started back in 1934 uh, during the Depression when the Civilian Conservation Corps, which had been created by uh, Franklin Roosevelt, to combat uh, unemployment into the Depression, had sent a number of people out into the national forests to do conservation work. And one of the things they wanted to do was to more effectively fight fires. By 1934, you could do that using airplanes by dropping guys in, in theory, uh, to fight these fires. And so there was experimentation done throughout the 1930s over the next five years. And in 1939, it became an official program of the U.S. Forest Service uh, launched in the Pacific Northwest region, up where we are. So Montana, Washington, Idaho. Um, The first official jumps were in 1940, and permanent stations were set up in Missoula, Montana, 
and in Winthrop, Washington uh, by 1942. And eventually, training bases were established in Missoula, and then so-called spike camps were spread out through all these different areas where fires tended to pop up in the summer. Uh, Places like Missoula, Montana, Redmond, Oregon, Chico, California, and all of these eventually over time grew into smoke jumper uh, bases for these guys to operate from. Uh, It's interesting, in 1940, a U.S. Army major named William Lee uh, attended a training uh, session or series of training sessions for the smoke jumpers, uh, was really wowed by it, and eventually he became a general, and he's most he's best known for founding the 101st Airborne Division. Uh, paratroopers, of course, most famous for parachuting into Normandy on D-Day in 1944. Also during the war, a segregated black unit, the 555th Parachute Infantry Battalion, uh, who were not allowed to jump into combat uh, because of their race, were instead sent in 1945 to fight uh, forest fires in the West and became smoke jumpers, jumping for the military, into fires. That year they fought 36 fires in western states, and they account for the first fatality among smoke jumpers uh, in history when one died uh, in an accident during a fire. Okay, so with all that in mind, let's, let's get back to Jim Harrison, who when we left him, this 20-year-old kid who'd been a smoke jumper the year before and had quit because... It was too dangerous. Notices a fire at the bottom of Man Gulch along the river. Um, Knowing what to do because of his experience, Harrison uh, descended the slope from where he was and with equipment that he gathered up from his site, began to fight the fire on his own, trying to dig uh, brake lines to contain and channel the fire, hoping at some point uh, that help would come. He did this on his own for four hours. From noon to 4 p.m. on a 97-degree day uh, with high winds, um, a high-risk day at the time. There were a number of fires going on elsewhere in the forests in Montana at the time. He did this for four hours on his own. And then at 4 o'clock on the nose, in what must have been, you know, a heavenly sound to his ears, he looked up when he heard a DC-3 cargo plane appear overhead. And it was uh, flown by the Johnson Flying Service out of Missoula, Montana, out of the airfield where the local smoke jumper base was. It's a plane that still exists today. It's known as Miss Montana. And if you go to the Museum of Mountain Flying at the Missoula Airport today, you can go right, get right up to her. And if you're lucky, you might be able to get inside uh, this, this plane, uh, which I was able to a few weeks ago. Uh, so it was, that was really fun. Uh, but it was flying 16 smoke jumpers in it. Uh, there's also a spotter on board to keep an eye on the fire as well as all the equipment and the food they needed, and one radio, all of which that would be parachuted in with, with the team. Uh, so Harrison, who must have been exhausted by this point, watched as the plane circled a few times so the crew could determine where was the best place to jump. The foreman inside was a man named Wagner Dodge. He was 33 years old, far and away the oldest member of this team. And uh, working with the spotter, they decided that they should jump onto the high end of the upper north slope of the gulch on the other side of the fire um, above Harrison at the tall at the end of a really big section of that cheat grass that I mentioned. Okay, so it arrived at four, took 10 minutes to get its position to figure out what to do, throwing out streamers to determine the wind direction, that type of thing. And at 410, Dodge led the crew uh, out. Um, only 15 jumped. The 16th uh Felt sick, got sick on his way, uh, and so he ended up returning to base with the aircraft. Um, and after what happened that day, he ended up resigning from uh, the smoke jumpers. Uh, 
for understandable reasons, as, as you'll see. Now, the rest of this group that bailed out um, from 1,500 feet, so a low jump, okay, and, and the piloting who, guy who was flying this in high winds in a gulch over a fire deserves some credit too. That's dangerous flying. But these guys who jumped out, the oldest was 33, that was Dodge. The rest, most of them were in their 20s, and most of them their early 20s. Two of them were 19 years old, including one who was jumping on his 19th birthday. And the youngest was just 17, a young boy named Robert Sally from Willow Creek, Montana. And things didn't go well from the outset. The winds were picking up along the river and the gulch, and and that scattered the smoke jumpers all over the north slope. And that north slope was at a 75-degree grade. Okay, So that just gives you an idea of how steep that is, 75 degrees. Therefore, it took them all time to regroup and collect their gear, which was also scattered all over by the high winds. Worse still, the parachute attached to the radio didn't open. And so that radio smashed to pieces after falling from 1,500 feet. So there was no way to communicate with the plane or with other units uh, throughout the range in case it was necessary. So most of this north slope, 75 degrees, covered in knee-high cheatgrass, uh, had been sort of left alone for a really long time. It wasn't grazing territory for for cattle or anything like that. Um, But they just arrived and gathered their stuff and decided to tackle the fire. Uh, Dodge, by the time that happened, it was almost 5 o'clock. And Dodge went down the the slope to meet Harrison, who he found, uh, as he reported later, relieved and exhausted beyond words. Um, Assessing the situation together, they ended up rejoining everyone upslope who had collected their gear and eaten quickly. Once they had done that, Dodge then broke the group into two parts and sent them downslope. And the idea was to get on either side of the fire to flank it and set up brakes along the side and then try and push it into areas on the south face with, with less fuel. Um, Dodge was also new to this crew, and that's, that's worth mentioning. At about 45 minutes later, though, as they worked their way down the slope and moved into their positions and, and evaluated this fire, um, about 545 it was, uh, things went badly and went badly in a hurry. And it went badly because of something that's called a blow-up. It's a phenomenon that only became more closely studied after this day. The swirling winds along the river is where this started, surged. And with a fire that was already high in its heat, the two of them together combined to explode the fire suddenly in size, in speed, and in direction. So much so that the fire hopped from the south face of the gulch to the bottom of the north face of the gulch. And at a 75-degree angle, covered in fuel, fire burns upward really fast. And you had 15 guys (laughs) coming down. 16 guys coming down towards it and suddenly a fire racing up uh, toward them. And within seconds, the fire was moving uphill towards all of them. And because of how they were positioned coming down the hill, the fire, the smoke jumpers on either side of the fire, they were behind these side ridges. They couldn't see it coming. The only people who could see it coming were Dodge and Harrison. And Harrison was further up the slope, exhausted, seemingly unable to move. He was so tired he couldn't even get his gear off of his back. Uh, The last Dodge saw of him was he was sitting down, unable to move. But Dodge saw it. Both of them knew it was really bad news. And once the other smoke jumpers were turned into view, Dodge shouted at them to drop all their equipment and get back up the slope and get up there as fast as possible. Their only hope they had was literally to get to the top of the ridge, which was several hundred meters above them at a 75-degree angle. 
Now, it became really quick, really clear, really quickly that they weren't going to make it. And so Dodge did something that he hadn't planned on, that wasn't even a firefighting practice at the time, and that the investigating inquiry after the incident decided he'd done on the spur of the moment. He lit a fire around himself. It's called an escape fire. With the, with the larger fire about 100 meters away, he lit a fire around himself to clear it. That fire would burn at much lower heat, would burn the fuel around him, and because of that, the fire racing up towards them would literally go around him and burn up the slope. He was counting on his, his fire protection gear to save his life, at least. And he called on all of his men to join him as quickly as possible. But none of them really knew what he was doing. It, didn't, it, it wasn't until later that the survivors, of which there were few, I hate to tell you this, they only realized much later what he had done. He lit this fire, and because it wouldn't be as hot as the blow-up around him, he counted it would save his life. But because none of these other jumpers knew what he was doing when he called them to join him, they didn't. And they rushed back to the top. And at the very top of the gulch is what's called a hogback, a ridge line that on the other side of it, of course, is another side of the ridge. And the hogback, there are cracks in it, crevices, where if you're lucky, you can get into one and pop out the other side. But they didn't know if this existed or not. So they all ran to the top. Unfortunately, only two of the company made it there, made it up to the top and picked, picked some crevice lines uh, in this hogback that actually went through to the other side. They had no idea if they would, but only two, Walter Rumsey of Larned, Kansas, and the 17-year-old Robert Sally of Willow Creek were the only two who made it to the top. Two others got close but died of their burns the next day at the hospital. Down below, other than Dodge, the escape fire saved his life. and He was actually able to walk away from this. The rest of the company died in the fire. Investigators the next day determined that the fire overtook the bulk of the jumpers at exactly 5.56 p.m., 11 minutes after the fire jumped to the north face. And they determined it when they found young Jim Harrison's burned body and looked at the melted watch on his hand and saw that the, uh, the, wa the watch hands had melted in place at 5.56 p.m. So that quickly, this was done. And today you can visit Man Gulch and their bodies, while they were retrieved, ended up being buried on the slopes where they were found. There are 12 crosses there and one Star of David that you can visit there. Now, I realize that is a really sad story. Now, let me play it out a little bit more for you, though, so to kind of bring it back around. The story obviously was national news, right? Uh, 13, <laughs> 13 men killed, young men killed trying to fight a fire just in minutes. And uh, so when it became national news, of course, then the push became to prevent something like this from ever happening again. And that's exactly what happened. The U.S. Forest Service, the U.S. military, and other entities after Man Gulch invested deeply in studying what we would now call fire science, learning more about how blowups develop and how to help minimize the threat of them to smoke jumper crews. New tactics were developed. And despite one other mass casualty smoke jumper event, which happened at the 1994 South Canyon Fire in Colorado, smoke jumping casualties after Man Gulch dropped drastically. The biggest development over time became the new protocol, or the protocol that smoke jumpers follow today that has the acronym LCES, Lookouts, Communication, Escape Routes, and Safety Zones, to keep themselves safe. When they fly into a fire, they have to investigate spots where they can put lookouts who can keep an eye 
on the fire so that you don't have a repeat of these guys being out of sight of a problem. Communication, everybody has a radio. There's not just one radio like there was at Man Gulch. Escape routes, those have to be determined before the team jumps in, which didn't happen at Man Gulch. And safety zones, places where that can be cleared out by even more jumpers or by hot shots coming in, where if there is an emergency, they can find safety. And that's, that's not far away. If any one of those things are not possible, those guys do not jump. Period. They look for a new entry point to the fire or they wait for ground forces to come in and work the fire that way. Since Man Gulch, hundreds and hundreds of fires have been attacked by smoke jumpers successfully, and the far majority of them have all hiked out safely. And in addition, untold thousands of acres of land and dwellings have been saved from destruction, likely without anyone really hearing about it, knowing about it, or appreciating it. Smoke jumpers are like baseball umpires that way. When they are doing their job well, we shouldn't really hear about them or notice them. But the reason we don't these days is because of the lessons learned from those 13 lives lost at Man Gulch. So does that make it worth it? To bring it back around to the beginning of the show, were their deaths worth it? I don't like that idea at all, as I mentioned that. So I tend to rephrase it. Their deaths led to changes that helped save lives later, a lot of lives later. And that is far and away the only quote-unquote best thing that can come out of a tragedy like this of so many young men lost so early in life. And it is a sad fact that in tragedies and failures like this, the biggest and most important lessons seem to emerge. It isn't fair, it isn't easy, but oftentimes it seems to be true. And so it seems that the thing that we can learn is, how can we best prevent this from happening again? What are the things that didn't happen? And usually it's a multitude of factors that stack up to create a disaster like this. Any one of them not happening could have prevented it. So going through and investigating these things and making changes is the best way to make sure that those lives lost weren't lost for nothing. And so with that in mind, that's the kind of thing uh, going forward. These types of stories are the things that I think are worth talking about on this show. Because whether we know it or not, we are connected today to the legacy of those men who died at Man Gulch. Their deaths led to practices that protect all of us. It's really, it's really pronounced for those of us who live out in the Northwest, like I do. But that's the gift that's here. And so the negative, fortunately, we can put alongside a positive. So thanks for joining me today for this story, for this edition of This Show is All About You. Thanks for hanging in on what is uh, definitely a sad story. They won't all be like that, I promise. But nevertheless, thanks for uh, joining me. I am your host, J.D.K. Winnikin. Come back next week for another great story. Uh, thanks to Airway Science for Kids for sponsoring. And until we see you next week, chins up, everyone. Music.